Oh, hi, Sammy. Uh, you're all good? You're all set to talk? Yes. By the way, you're left-handed? Yes. Um, where did I drop that hint? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just reviewing your Twitter account today, uh, just in preparation for this. I'm left-handed as well. Oh, right. right. It was when Whitey, when Whitey Ford died, the pitcher. Yes. Yes. That. Yeah, uh, yes. So you're a lefty as well. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. I don't normally ask my guests about the left-handed, right-handed thing, but it was like, oh, that's nice to know that there's a fellow lefty, Southpaw. Right. It's weird how um, something that's kind of really not that uncommon can still be something you strongly identify with. Like, it was a big thrill to me to learn when I was a kid that Paul McCartney was also left-handed. Yeah. so validating somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a few of us out there, and there are some really good ones out there, some really good lefties. Like, we don't get enough credit within the culture for being left-handed and super talented. <laughs> um, well, Maybe you and some other people. I don't know if I fit in that super talented bracket, but there we are. Here we are. All right. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and I'm speaking to a writer and humorist and lyricist. Uh, You have a lot of different uh, job titles. It's pretty cool. Uh, David Kemp. Uh, his new book is Sunny Days, the children's television revolution that changed America. So before we get into uh, your book, Sunny Days, which covers obviously Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, uh, Neighborhood, Electric Company, Schoolhouse Rock, Fat Albert. These are a number of prominent cultural institutions. So before we get into that book, I want to ask about your approach, uh, because you also do some music journalism. And in October 2004 for Vanity Fair... You wrote a profile on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin. And those two dudes obviously are and were cultural institutions. Uh, We lost Cash a few years back. So when you sit down to talk to somebody like Cash and Rubin, like, what is your approach? Like, how can you set aside almost famous fanboy enthusiasm or do you just kind of proudly display it? Like, what is your approach? Well, first of all, hello, I'm David Camp, the author of Sunny Days. Uh, Sammy, that was an incredibly long introduction and first question, so so your guests might have forgotten, your listeners might have forgotten who your guest is. That's right, so, yeah. Uh, no, you're doing a great that. job. Thanks um, for fixing it for me. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, to answer your question about people like Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash, uh, first of all, thank you for mentioning that piece, and you must have some special antennae, Sammy, because that's my favorite piece of all the Vanity Fair stories I've ever written, and it came out, as you said, in 2004. Mm-hmm. I want to clarify that Johnny Cash was not alive. The, the, the occasion of that piece was um, that Cash had died and that Rick Rubin had worked with him kind of the last 10 years of his life and given him that rarest of things, a sort of uh, fruitful last artistic stage. You know, most people die when they're in, most creative people die when they're in artistic decline, and it was such a magical thing to me, anyway, that Rick Rubin and and uh, Johnny Cash were together, able to, able to uh, coax out a series of albums that represented an artistic high point. As for the fanboy thing, I weirdly um, have have not been particularly possessed of that. I've never been awed by someone I was interviewing. Me, uh, there's a lot of anxiety leading up to meeting the person, but once you're with the person almost instantly that idea of, oh, this is just another human being I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a kind of amazing uh, natural flow ensues. With Rick Rubin in particular, 
you know, he's not much older than me, so we have a lot of common cultural uh, touchstones. And I was just really interested in how he lived out a kind of fantasy of mine about how he took someone who we grew up with as kids, as a cultural icon, who'd been kind of mothballed by society and, and, and made him relevant again. And I think sort of the, our, our mutual delight in the fact that it happened made the whole made him very comfortable about telling me some things he'd never told other interviews interviewers about about um his process of working with cash yeah that's where i wanted to start with because obviously when you're writing about things like sesame street these are massive cultural connotations massive cultural institutions and rick rubin kind of falls in that same category <laughs> when you look at the work that he's done well he, he's lost weight he's not massive anymore okay so okay thank you you've, you've hung out with him i haven't so you'll keep me up to date <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, and it can be intimidating because there's so much that you want to talk to these people about and trying to get all these different stories out. And that's why I was kind of curious about your approach. Oh, well, it's, like, let me just give you one story where, where, where the fanboy thing did go wrong, because it's, it, it's rare, as I said. Like, I'm usually not particularly intimidated or overwhelmed, but anything involving the, the Beatles and Rolling Stones can do this. When I was a lot younger than I am now... Um, I was interviewed, interviewing Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. and I was relatively inexperienced at the time, and he's also a very laconic guy who has a deadpan expression, gives kind of short answers, and it ended up being a lovely interview, but there was just this one point where I started rambling about, Charlie, what's it like when you achieve a certain level of success where you don't really necessarily have to be... Um, motivated anymore because you've done everything you have nothing left to prove and i always imagine that someone in a position like you you could just spend the rest of your life um <laughs> you know sitting out on your veranda every morning with fresh squeeze uh <laughs> fresh squeeze orange juice and french press coffee and a croissant and a slice of a cantaloupe and i'm wondering like is that like how do you retain artistic motivation so i had this <laughs> long logaric question like that and he just stared at me stone-faced for i'd say it's probably 10 seconds, but it felt more like 10 minutes. Then he finally goes, cantaloupe melon? Bloody hell, I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I had this rambling uh, say, dial, yeah. or rambling, rambling myologue about, you know, French press coffee and a croissant and a yeah. slice of And I love that that was the one thing he picked up on. But generally, my approach is to engage as on a human level as possible, meaning... You, 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 Sam, you've done a nice job of articulating that I've engaged with Americanness in most of my writing. I've written mm-hmm. about these big American uh, institutions and individuals like Sesame Street, like Johnny Cash, like Rick Rubin, like the Brill Building, where all those great early to mid '60s hit songs came from. I've written about Norman Rockwell, you know, it just it, it, and Bruce Springsteen, you know, like. Things that are really uh, identified with America, Sly Stone, I could I could just go on. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's just, that it, so much of it is just uh, examining the stuff that's meant a lot to you in your life, and I have to be, um, for better and worse, an American, and kind of like uh, taking inventory, saying what really touched me, what really moves me, what still animates me to this day. And then you meet the human beings behind it. It's slightly demystifying, but it's also fascinating because it's a great part about having the job I have, which is I get this opportunity to ask all these questions that have been incubating in my head for decades. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that you were talking about just now, about like how you try to find things that kind of uh, animate you or move you, 
I was startled very early on in your book, Sunny Days. Uh, there's a moment uh, where Loretta Long, uh, she just got cast to play Susan on Sesame Street. And the show's not on the air yet. And so she calls her parents back home in Michigan. And she's describing her, her new job. And then she starts trying to describe Big Bird. And it, it startled me because it never occurred to me that there was a life before Big Bird. <laughs> I don't know, like, you know what I mean? Like, he's always been there, like the sun and the moon and the stars. It's it's stunning to me that they were able to make these right decisions when they're making these shows and can create characters like Big Bird uh, that end up becoming cultural institutions. Right. And just to, for your listeners to clarify the, the Loretta Long story, what's funny about that story is she's describing Sesame Street to her parents before it's on TV. Mm-hmm. And the parents are in rural Michigan. They're actually farmers. And she's in New York. It's the late 60s. And she's saying, yeah, I'll be on this new TV show where I'll be sitting on a stoop and this eighth eight-foot-tall, giant yellow bird is going to be talking to me. And her parents thought she was, you know, it was the late 60s, they thought she was having some kind of uh, drug-induced hallucination <laughs> or bad trip, and they were, they, were, they were almost ready to come and, like, pull her out of New York and bring, bring her home. <laughs> but to, to your point, Sesame Street was something new, utterly new in 1969, and, and yes, now it's like a utility that comes with the house, like running water and electricity. <laughs> Yeah. You turn on the TV and it's there, or you or you, you you find it on your iPad, whatever. But yeah, there was a there was a time when children's television was just nothing but cartoons or patronizing romper room and and bozo the clown type stuff. And to to kind of invent this out of whole cloth is part of what interested me is that it was so audacious to take this on, and it wasn't just that Sesame Street was like psychedelic and cool and, and kind of funky and, and, and multiracial. That's a huge component of my book. It was also that it entailed all this rigorous preparation, like working with child psychologists, working with curricular advisors. It took three years from when it was conceived in winter of 66 to uh, when it first aired in November of 69, three and a half years. So it, it just shows the level of rigorous preparation that went into it. And it's kind of why nothing has outshined it in terms of children's TV since. I mean, there have been good shows, but nothing quite on Sesame Street's level. And I think part of it was was the luck and the timing, but a big part of it was just how rigorously and thoughtfully it was prepared. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that, like, I listened to a number of interviews you did for the book, and a, a lot of people tend to focus on the Sesame Street aspect. Obviously, that that's the bigger hit. But, I mean, your book does cover Mr. Rogers, uh, Neighborhood, Electric Company, Schoolhouse Rock. And that's kind of a testimony to, to Sesame Street's longevity that, like, it has a deep impact on our culture. Yeah, and, and in, in a weird way, I kind of realized midway through writing the book that Sesame Street was almost a prototype for Saturday Night Live, if you think about it. You know, they both had these, um, for the time, really revolutionary urban sets um, they had a troop of regular players. They were sketch-based. They had really good infectious music, a great house band. Um, in fact, the, the original bassist in the Saturday Night Live band was a man named Bob Cranshaw, who's also the original bassist in Sesame Street's band. And, and, and it's like, if you think about it, like in terms of entertainment, not news shows, the longest-running entertaining programs on TV are Sesame Street and Saturday Night Live. And, and it's, it's that they both have a kind of magic dust sprinkled over them mm-hmm. that has given them a longevity that, that no, other, no other entertainment program has. 
you write about that. Um, you say that Sesame Street was revolutionary in many ways. This is a quote from your book. Sesame Street was revolutionary in many ways, not least in its embrace of urban shabbiness. And I'm wondering, too, if that also, not just for the Saturday Night Live connection, but also kind of connected, like, as an early acceptance of hip-hop, especially as we get into the 80s. Because Chuck D called rap music uh, the scene of the ghetto. And, like, I wonder if that urban setting kind of helped, I guess, kind of market or soften or, like, kind of be like a gateway into that hip-hop era. I write about this to some extent, Sammy, in the book. In that, first of all, Sesame Street, when it premiered in 69, was, and I use this phrase in the book, the blackest show on television because it was before Flip Wilson, the comedian, had his weekly variety show. And it was before, it was like a year before Soul Train was on TV. And so it was really revolutionary to have this show on that was on um, five days a week with new programs five days a week with uh, Loretta Long as Susan and Matt Robinson as Gordon, um, along with white people, you know, Bob McGrath and, and, uh, and Will Lee is Mr. Hooper and these Muppets. And then a few, you know, a few seasons later, they added some, some Latino Hispanic people to the mix, like uh, Emilio Delgado as Luis and Sonia Manzano as Maria. But it was just, it was kind of the first mainstreaming of multiculturalism and specifically black culture, I think was injected into the veins of young kids not just black kids, but across the board, young kids in America for the first time. So, if, you know, I'm part of a charter generation of the first generation of Sesame Street uh, watchers. I mean, I was a preschooler in 69, and my mom, who was a research scientist and had read about this experimental new public television show, she plunked me down in front of the, front of the TV for episode one. And I would say that it shaped a sensibility for white kids like me, we never knew a world where black culture wasn't central to America's cultural identity. And we were, and, and there wasn't an otherness to black people as there might have been for generations prior. At the same time, black viewers, young black kids, felt so validated and seen in a way that their predecessors had not because they saw, here's a TV show for kids that I'm watching five days a week that has people on it who look like me. Now, to get back to your hip-hop question, I don't think it's a coincidence that the generation that first grew up with Sesame Street, basically people who are now about 45 to 55 years old, were the generation who kind of popularized hip-hop, meaning like hip-hop was invented by people older than us. Mm -hmm. But my generation, and it is that 45 to 55 bracket, I think that's the group that's sort of like across the board, black and white and, and, and other, that we were the ones who kind of embraced hip-hop and ensured its longevity, not just as you know, passing fad of the late 70s and early 80s, but as this legitimate art form. Because I think there's a, there's a, a, a comfort uh, and, and, and an acknowledgement of, of how this, this, you know, this, this black cultural offering had a validity that, that transcended, you know, its black origins. And I mean, Sesame Street's kind of the same thing that Joan Gans Cooney, even though she was a white lady and she's still with us, she conceived of the show explicitly at the beginning for young black kids, which is why the show seems so black in its content. Um, was because its original target audience were, um, you know, resource-deprived, 
black kids in the inner city, like Harlem at the time was emblematic of that. She was, she was aiming to reach kids in Harlem and give them a leg up um, on entering school. So, so, so I, I'm rambling a bit, but what I'm saying is I don't think it's coincidence that the first Sesame Street generation was also kind of the first hip-hop generation. Yeah, it makes sense because we weren't scared of the street, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. You know what I mean? Because you saw all these different people, the store, the the different Muppets. Um, the the Muppets all had different emotions as well. Oscar the Grouch was obviously grouchy. Big Bird was all inquisitive. Like, you just kind of see this broad range of things and you're like, yeah, this is how the neighborhood is. So you're not scared of the street of the neighborhood. And so when music began as like part of that neighborhood, um, as kind of an identity of that neighborhood, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I'll just go down the road with this and we'll have fun. Yeah, and, and, and Questlove um, of The Roots wrote the forward to my book, and he talks about this too. He talks about how Sesame Street didn't look like anything else he knew about as a young kid. He was, he was uh, growing up in Philadelphia, and, and, and I think you know, between the music and the characters, you know, it had exactly the effect that Joe Gans Cooney was hoping for, not just for Questlove, but he's, he's a famous example. But it's just, if you're a young black kid and, um, you know, again, generations before you grow up believing we're going to be marginalized or considered less than. And then here's this TV show where you have, you have black characters as regulars, but you also, especially in the early years, have these uh, amazing guest appearances by Stevie Wonder and Lena Horne and, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson uh, and, and uh, Harry Belafonte. And then, and then there's even like some, some unknowns, like there was a recurring, uh, visit by, by a group called Listen My Brother, which is a singing group, and one of whose members was a young Luther Vandross, mm. and one of whose accompanists was um, the guitarist Carlos Alomar, who you know, later would play with David Bowie. So, so I mean, it, it was just this this incredible uh, cauldron of, of cultural ferment and um, and, and proto funk and proto hip hop in a kid setting, which is why I mean, beyond the educational content in terms of curricular goals, like yeah, I learned the alphabet and how to count to twenty from the show. I learned so much culturally, and I think that applies to people across the board. You know, whether you're a white suburban kid, a black inner city kid, um, someone in rural Appalachia, because you know it was reaching everyone. And is that why you refer to that era, that 60s and 70s, as the Age of Enlightenment Junior? Um, partially, in that, yeah, we, we grew up kind of, I would say, with, with minds more open um, in a positive way than, than previous generations. But I would also say the Age of Enlightenment meant that the other shows that I deal with in the book dealt with the emotional intelligence of children, meaning what these programs have in common like Free to Be You and Me, which was kind of a feminist primer on gender for kids, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, what these shows had in common was they didn't talk down to kids. These shows respected hmm. the emotional intelligence and acknowledged the emotional intelligence of kids. Whereas, like, if you watch the Howdy Doody show, which baby boomers grew up with, and, you know, I don't mean to disrespect baby boomers, but if I watch on YouTube, old clips of Howdy Doody. The guy's name is Buffalo Bob Smith, the host. I find those shows terrifying because <laughs> they're like, they're, they're kind of visually and, and, um, and, and they're kind of assaultive and loud. Like it, it's got much more of that. Hey kids, we're coming at you to entertain you and sell stuff to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's kind of a one way street of, you know, kind of, 
belligerently forcing jollity and, and products upon you. And whereas Fred Rogers was, was, was kind of talking to you in this dulcet, slow tone and talking to you about the anger that you might feel. And it wasn't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm doing it like it's a bit, I'm making fun of him, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying what he was doing was so novel. And Free to Be You and Me, you had, you had Rosie Greer, this huge defensive end who played for the Los Angeles Rams and the New York Giants, singing a song with the guitar in his lap, singing a song called It's All Right to Cry. You know, when crying gets the sad out of you. And, you know, now too often people frame stuff like that as as snowflakey and, and, and less than masculine or whatever. But, but you know, back then... There was this, to go back to the idea of enlightenment, the age of enlightenment junior, that was incredibly enlightened. It was revolutionary then, and it, and, and it was embraced. Back then, in the early 70s, the buy-in to this stuff was amazing. I, I say in the book that now, if you try to launch something like this now, it would seem like a, a culture wars provocation. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what are they trying to tell us about how to raise our kids? One thing, one of the reasons the book is called Sunny Days is not just because the, the first words of the Sesame Street theme are sunny day, sleep in the clouds away. It's also because these were enlightened times, like sunlight was shining upon young kids and the parents who were saying, these programs are good. We like what these programs are doing. But the, the buy-in that you're talking about as well just now, I'll give you a quick example. Like in the NBA, for superstars like Michael Jordan, for them to succeed, buy-in is an important requirement, right? And that's what the coaches do. They convince them to like put the team first or to pass the ball, for example. And the buy-in that you're talking about too is also related to like the common good. And that's what the coaches do with this NBA superstar like Michael Jordan. We kind of seem to have moved away from that common good element or that, that belief that there is a common good. And I don't know if that sounds like a cynical indictment or like, or when you look at your book and you do the research, can you chart a pattern in evolution from the 60s till today and see that we have kind of wandered away from common good? Well, yeah, in, in the late 60s, the mid to late 60s, that's when uh, Lyndon Johnson was president. And even though he really, really messed up with the Vietnam War, domestically, he implemented a lot of amazing federal programs. There was, there was this, and again, talk about buy-in, uh, both houses of Congress were two-thirds Democrats, and Johnson was a Democrat, so it was a progressive-minded era. And so all these big acts were passed, like the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, of course, the Civil Rights Act, the Public Broadcasting Act. In fact, this week marks the 50th anniversary of PBS. And there was basically it was basically a progressive-minded era when the American people not only didn't object to big government, they kind of embraced big government. There was this expectation that, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to uh, uplift all of society by uplifting the least fortunate. A lot of programs aimed at alleviating the effects of poverty and educational inequity, like Head Start, which was this program that started in 65, basically to give inner-city kids sort of access pre-kindergarten to educational resources so they could enter kindergarten not already behind their counterparts in richer communities. So, yeah, there was a belief in the common good, and, and the people who, who started Sesame Street were like, 
people who sacrificed more lucrative careers in, in commercial television to work on this show. And Rita Moreno, who is the star, one of the stars of The Electric Company, you know, she was already an established actress who won an Oscar for playing Anita in West Side Story. And when she was offered this spot in The Electric Company, she said, every single one of my actor friends said, don't do it because you'll be stereotyped forever as just a children's performer. Um, but she said, I looked at my daughter and I thought like, this is what it's all about. Her daughter's the same age as me. And she, and, and she, she committed to it. And she said, look, it was public television in every sense of the word public, including the salary, mm-hmm. meaning the money was, the money was, was crappy by, by, um, you know, entertainment standards, but the sense of common good. And it wasn't just, you know, egghead curricular advisors. It was the performers and the, the, uh, the entertainment professionals who said, no, we're going to, we're going to sublimate our material success for this, this, uh, this, this bigger cause of, of educating children and, and eliminating inequity if we can. Are you surprised then that later on, Mr. Rogers, I guess to go back to the hip hop thing, had beef, Mr. Rogers had beef with Sesame street for a bit. Well, I'm not surprised in that if you think about culturally where these two different shows were coming from, they were just coming from radically different places. So, again, to fill in your listeners, in the early years of Sesame Street, Fred Rogers, who was Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, was not necessarily a huge fan of the show, and there was kind of some reciprocal uh, denigration. I mean, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it like a... a <laughs> a, a, a beef necessarily, <laughs> but Fred Rogers didn't like the speed of Sesame Street. Joan Gans Cooney said she deliberately modeled Sesame Street's pacing on that of Rowan and Martin's Lassie, which was this late '60s sketch show that was kind of a flash in the pan, two or three year big success that had this really rat-a-tat, super fast pace. And, and, and kind of psychedelic graphics. I think Joan Gans Cooney took the pacing and some of the, some of the visual um, palette from that show um, and, 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 and applied it to Sesame Street. Whereas Mr. Rogers, again, it was a show more about feelings than about teaching kids curriculum. And he just wanted to um, kind of cast a gentle spell on children and sort of give them a quiet space to, uh, to, to be heard and to engage with things as simple as like changing your shoes to uh, feeding the fish and, and, so, and receiving the mail. And so Fred Rogers at first didn't like the speed, the pacing of Sesame Street. He thought it was too overwhelming. And he also didn't like what he described as the violence of some of the bits. Like there was a bit, a counting bit that they, that, that they, uh, that recurred basically where whether the number was one or 10 or somewhere in between. It was a series of, um, you know, quick cuts between animated bits. And it always concluded with a baker voiced by Jim Henson, though not physically played by Jim Henson, who would tumble down the stairs with his tray of baked goods. Like it was two, he would go, chocolate cream pies. (laughs) And then he would tumble down the stairs and every, with the silver tray and the pies would go flying. And, 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 you know, Personally, Sammy, I found this funny when I was small. <laughs> yeah. But Fred Rogers, I unearthed an interview with Fred Rogers where he said, you know, a guy falling downstairs can potentially be very disturbing to a lot of child viewers because you have to bear in mind that a lot of them have only recently learned how to walk. 
and this might reinforce some sense of um, that 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 they could fall down and whatever. And when I first read those words, I thought, "Oh, Fred, you press, get over it." Yes. <laughs> but then I was doing research at the University of Maryland, who's a have a, they have a closed collection of the children's television workshops archives, and it's awesome. It's full of all sorts of good stuff. You can see all the letters that people wrote to Sesame Street back then. And there was a flood of letters from parents making the very point that Fred Rogers was making. My child was really upset by that baker falling down the stairs, and they received a significant volume of letters such that uh, they determined that, you know, we're not going to run this segment. They actually took it out of the Sesame Street rotation. So in other words, Fred Rogers was right. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and but that's, so that's also a sign of um, Sesame Street's willingness. So this is another thing we've gotten away from. Um, you talked about how we've gotten away from the concept of common good. We've gotten away from big American institutions and big Americans being able to admit I was wrong, and I'm going to change what I've been doing. Sesame Street basically said we were wrong. We thought it was funny, but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't funny enough to justify the upset it was causing in our child viewers. Um, but anyway, long story short, Fred Rogers and Sesame Street kind of later reconciled. Uh, like, like they had a reciprocal thing where Big Bird appeared in the neighborhood of make-believe, and That's Fred right, Rogers yeah. came to visit Big Bird on Sesame Street. So it all worked out in the end. And, you know, and I, I should say, in the early years, the Sesame Street people talked smack about Fred Rogers because they thought he was corny. They just thought, you know, like uh, Sonia Manzano, who played Maria, said, like, we used to make fun of him because we were the young, druggy generation, <laughs> and we thought he was uncool, and we questioned his sexuality. But she said, now... I have shame that I ever that I ever thought that, you know, because you know Fred Rogers is is, is you know the face of, of radical kindness. Mm -hmm. And what about Jim Henson? You've mentioned him a couple of times. Like, did writing this book and working on you t you interviewed Frank Oz, for example? Did did your appreciation for Jim Henson deepen? Yeah, I, I mean, it, my appreciation for Jim Henson was already kind of at the uppermost level anyway, but it it, it somehow brimmed over, I suppose, because. You learn that he's not just a brilliant guy, but that he, he was a good-hearted guy. Um, this is a guy who was, by his 30th birthday, already a millionaire because he was already using his Muppets for commercials and TV appearances on things like the Ed Sullivan Show, Ed Sullivan show and other variety shows like the Jimmy Dean Show. But he was minting money doing all sorts of advertising work and, and entertainment work, and he never thought of himself as a children's entertainer. But when he was approached about joining Sesame Street, he thought this is too important to pass up. And the other thing is, is that he just had his fourth kid. No, that's wrong. He hadn't just had, but his fourth kid was a preschooler, uh, John Paul Henson. And this is the first time that one of his kids was really struggling in preschool and kindergarten to to pick things up. He was later diagnosed with learning disabilities, but at the time, the, the, the science wasn't, wasn't as evolved as, as it is now. So Jim Henson was really interested in how do kids learn? So he basically sacrificed the millions of dollars that he could have earned to really you know, devote himself to Sesame Street. And I think that having the Muppets on Sesame Street and having Henson's sensibility on Sesame Street like, shaped it so significantly. I mean, I mean, we, we talk about them in tandem, you know, Sesame Street and Big Bird and Grover and Ernie and Bert, you know, they, it, it all goes together. So without Jim Henson, 
Sesame Street might not have taken off. I don't know if this is a fair or unfair question, and I apologize if it's unfair, but like when you're writing a book like this, and we've been talking about the common good and all this creativity, um, this age of enlightenment, like when you write a book like this, do you, do you mourn a little bit for America and where we've ended up? Or like, because it echoes a little bit of like Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City, where there's a little bit more of a despair now. Like when you look back at how good we were and how active and creative and ingenious and inspired we were, it seems like we've kind of really gotten far from that. So like, does it upset you or make you mourn for America? Well, I flip it around, Sammy, because when I conceived, when I came up with the idea for this book, it was actually in 2015, five years ago. And, you know, from where we, from where we sit now, 2015 sounds like paradise to us, doesn't mm-hmm. it? But, but, but all that said, even in 2015, I sensed that, you know, America was broken to some degree, um, uh, or at least, you know, there's a, a brokenness to the American spirit. Uh, I think, I think um, Trump had already come down the escalator and referred to Mexicans as, as rapists and so forth. And so, you know, there's there, there already that, that polarization and that, 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 that toxic environment. And so I deliberately wanted to write about a chapter or even just a sliver of American history that was a success story and had an upbeat positive outcome. And in again, you know, when you go back to me talking about why did I do a Johnny Cash Rick Rubin story, you know, because that was again something that worked out well. I started looking back upon stuff that I was uh, fluent in and passionate about. And I thought about Sesame Street and the electric company and Mr. Rogers and Free to Be You and Me and Schoolhouse Rock. And that period of the late sixties into the mid seventies was this remarkably fruitful and successful uh, you know, example of American ingenuity and um, American selflessness and, and, and American hard work producing a result, you know, a great result. So it's like, hey, this is kind of a happy story to write about. And also the other component of that, Fanny, is that it's not just looking back on it and saying, yeah, but we're all screwed now. Mm-hmm. It's there's a kind of hint, hint to the title Sunny Days as well. It's like, you know, when John and Yoko said, war is over if you want it. You know, my, my feeling is Sunny Days are, are here if you want them. Uh, it's a hint to people that you can look at this book and what happens in it as a roadmap to how we rebuild American society, as we know we have to do, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, for God's sake, mm-hmm. um, with a dysfunctional government. So I think no matter what, we know that we're going to have to rebuild America. And I kind of hope that there's a younger readership for this book that reads it and says, hey, it, it's been done before. Mm-hmm. You know, things were kind of crappy and polarized in the late 60s and early 70s, and and uh and, and out of that came some people who really doubled their efforts to, to remedy the situation. And so, you know, that, that's, that's why I don't let it get me down too much. The other thing is that as much as older people like to uh, malign millennials and Generation Z members as um, entitled or self-obsessed, I beg to differ because I see in millennials and Gen Z people who have more of this activist gene in them. To me, anyway, I see a lot of parallels in that they're choosing experience over careers and um, ideals over, over financial incentives. 
Now, that's partly because there's no jobs to be had anyway. But it's mm-hmm. also, I, I, I just see, I see an increased activism in, in people in, in their, you know, thir- ages 15 to 30 that reminds me of the spirit that animated Sesame Street in its early years. Yeah, you had a great quote early on in the book as, as unhinged as Sesame Street sounded to the uninitiated, what, what it stood for was hope. And that's ultimately what you're just talking about now is hope, right? Because hope is timeless. I know like we can sometimes glorify the past and make it seem like, yeah, Kennedy's uh, American, like uh, we're going to go to the moon speech. And it's like, yeah, this is amazing. We're going to do it. We're going to pull this off. But hope is timeless. And so it doesn't matter necessarily who's president or not president. Like hope can belong to any era. Absolutely. And, and actually, it does matter who's president. <laughs> but even so, uh, the idea that it, it's not this Pollyanna-ish hope. It's the idea that, okay, we know we have work to do. Like like this living through this year has revealed, um, if, it, if it hadn't already been revealed, how many shortcomings we have in our educational system and in our healthcare system. And, and in our you know, in, in just almost every every system that's that's uh, you know been given over to the free markets in America, and we need some kind of coordinated federal response. And so, okay, we have to implement that now. And and, and the, we have the hope that some good people are going to help us implement it. But we also have a roadmap. We have examples. We have Sesame Street and how it was started with the cooperation of the federal government and private funding and, you know, entertainment creatives who are willing to put, you know, ideals ahead of, you know, having six seasons in a movie. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up too, I I also would be remiss if we didn't bring up joy because that's the other side of hope as well. Like there, there was a joy in a lot of the stories and the the profiles of the creators as they're working on this stuff. They're obviously working very hard. Some of them are not making very much money, but there's a lot of joy and they're having fun. Um, when Steve Kerr was hired by the Warriors in his job interview, he told the ownership team that one of the hallmarks of the team that he wanted was for them to play with joy and to exhibit joy. And you don't always see a lot of joy in a lot of NBA teams, especially the teams that are losing. But joy was also one of the hallmarks of this era of enlightenment. Absolutely. And um, I'm glad you, you, you pointed that out because, yeah, in fact, joy is something I try to bring to the stuff I write in general. Um, I, you, you rattled off my credentials, and one of them is humorous. And even when I'm writing about serious subjects, I bring humor to them because that's, just, that's, that's both my nature and my coping mechanism. And I think that there's a lot of humor in this book in the telling, but there's also a lot of humor and joy from, from the people. And like, again, Rita Moreno told me that working with Morgan Freeman when, when Morgan Freeman was young and unknown on the electric company, she said they would literally pee themselves laughing doing their sketches <laughs> on the electric company. I mean, she, she, she said we had so much fun doing, doing this stuff, even while we were also doing it for this higher purpose. And the same with Sesame Street, you know, like interviewing all the original cast who survived. Um, it, 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 they said it was such a joy to, and Frank Oz, who, who you know, did, did the voices of Bert and Grover, and later on would do Miss Piggy on The Muppet Show. He said it was just the most fulfilling thing that I did in my life. And you heard that over and over again from people I interviewed. That you know, Naomi Foner, who is one of the young producers of The Electric Company, um, founding producers, and incidentally is also the mother of Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
but she later went on to become a successful Hollywood screenwriter. But again, she says, working on the electric company was the most joyful thing I did. And I think that animated what they were doing. And the, the bigger lesson I, I take from that is sometimes following your ideals leads you to the good place in your career and your life more than following the money. And, and, and I, you know, so God, I'm giving a TED talk here now. If you want to <laughs> shut me up, Sammy. <laughs> well, I <laughs> but, do. Yeah. I do want to follow up with your career, though, because uh, the book is obviously out now. Uh, but in terms of your career, what is Kiss My Aztec? Oh, Kiss My Aztec is my first musical. Hmm. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm a collaborator. I'm part of a creative team that includes John Leguizamo, who everyone knows is, is a famous uh, actor and comedian and writer. And then I'm also the other, I'm working with a great young composer named Benjamin Velez. Um, he and I are the songwriting team. And John and Tony Tacone, who's a great director, wrote the script. Kiss My Aztec is a musical comedy, kind of like Monty Python's Spamalot, mm -hmm. that it's a period piece. It's a period piece, but the humor is very silly, and yet, and it's also very contemporary. It's uh, a musical set in the Aztec Empire at the time of Spanish conquest. So we're talking about the early 1500s. And we all know what happened in real life, which is that the Spanish conquest succeeded and a civilization was essentially erased. But in our show, a rebel band of Aztecs actually wins the end. It's not a spoiler. It's a secret. It just gives you the sense of the show. And it's dealing with um, a lot of the ideas of uh, colonialism and cultural erasure, a lot of heavy issues, but with a really light touch. And um, so it's been this really joyous thing for me to return to that word um, to collaborate on songs that are really funny and get a real rise out of the audience, but also make a point. Like the opening song, White People on Boat. Um, can I curse on this show, Sam? Yeah, oh, I should have told you up front. Yeah, if you wanted to curse, go ahead. Because okay. <laughs> well, I know we were talking not, about Sesame Street and everything up. else, so I didn't bring it up. But yeah, no, no. if you want to go for I'm it. I'm not going to go on a swearing, no, I'm not gonna go on a swearing tirade, but, mm -hmm. but the very first song lyrics in the show are by three different Aztec characters who say, this used to be our fertile land, the Aztec Empire, green and grand, until those fuckers washed up on our sand, the white people on boats. And then that's the name of the opening song, White People <laughs> on Boats. And it's, it's sort of this talk of how like white people on boats have always disrupted the happiness of any civilization that was successfully existing on its own. Mm -hmm. And um, we flash forward in that song to like, look out. Africa, some bad Dutch dudes are coming your way. Vietnam, <laughs> you're going to get the French, then people from someplace called the U.S. of A. Yes. And so it's, and, and, and whose ass is coming? White people on boats. And so it's pointed and, and, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's provocative, but it's also really funny. And in my experience from sitting in audiences with, because, you know, no one knows what I look like, so I can just comfortably sit in the audience. People laugh. Like the first time they hear the phrase white people on boats, they're like, <laughs> yes. why, huh? But then as soon as they get into the, the rhythm and spirit of the song, they, 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 they get the message and the humor. And that's magical to, to experience that. The show ran at Berkeley Rep and La Jolla Playhouse, both in California last year. And if and when live theater ever becomes a thing again, we think we're going to get it to Broadway. Oh, that'd be great. It sounds like it's a uh, yeah. growth of uh, John's uh, Netflix special. What was it called? Latin History for Morons? Yeah, very much so. We developed that in our show in parallel to John's developing Latin History for Morons. So 
there's a lot of overlap in sort of the unacknowledged influence of indigenous cultures uh, on this continent and in such Central America, North America, and 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 you know that idea of cultural erasure that John is trying to teach his son in Latin history for morons. But no, we do we do have heroes, indigenous heroes and Latin heroes, and like this show is kind of making a, a similar point, but in a much sillier way, a much more Monty Python way, mm-hmm. but it still makes those points. That's cool. Where can people find you online to uh, hear some more about uh, white people on boats and on uh, your music writing and journalism and uh, sunny days and anything else you're going getting up to these days? Where can people find you online? All you got to do, all you got to do is remember my last name is spelled with a K and not a C. So it's davidcamp.com and it's D-A-V-I-D-K. AMP.com. That's simple, Sammy. Yeah, all right. Yeah. You're a simple man in complicated times. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for the book. It was a joy to read. I know we didn't touch upon it, but like one of the other kind of hallmarks of that era of Enlightenment Junior, as you as you frame it, is that freedom where people were experimenting and trying new things. And I sound I know it sounds like it's drugs. But that freedom is great, and we don't have a lot of that freedom now. We're kind of boxed in a little bit. As you said, there's culture wars and things going on. But that freedom they had to come experiment, to figure things out, and try things, and it just didn't work, and remove this, and whatever, that's great, and it's really inspiring, and it's really infectious. Thank you yeah, for Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a more freewheeling time artistically. I mean, it was the era when when the Beatles flourished, and, and, and you know, when... when, when rock and roll just became something more than beat music and, and the pop art era, like that sort of Peter Max sensibility and the War, Warhol-esque sensibility and that they could fold these things into children's programming is kind of amazing. Yeah. So thank you so much for the book. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. And uh, that's it. We covered quite a bit. Uh, so we're done. Okay. Hey, <laughs> thank you, Sammy. This was thank fun. You. Yo, that was writer David Kemp. I'm Sammy Yunan, and the book is Sunny Days, the children's television revolution that changed America. Highly recommended reading. To recap some of the shows covered in the book and our conversation, here we go. Ready for this? Sesame Street premiered on November 10, 1969. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood started right before the street on February 19, 1968. The Electric Company Powered up on October 25, 1971. Finally, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, September 9, 1972. While Schoolhouse Rock debuted on January 6, 1973. Shout out to three is the magic number. Yes, that's my jam. I mean, that's an impressive run. And it's not even a full, complete picture. I consumed all of those shows and I adored all of them. And what's amazing about Sunny Days is that it's not a shrine to nostalgia. It doesn't look back for the sake of looking back. What makes the book relevant is that it looks ahead. This, this is about our future as much as it is about our past. It's the sobering recognition we were once good, coupled with an invitation to be good again. Think about this for a second. Sesame Street. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on PBS got federal funding. 
we invested in the emotional well-being of children and equipped at-risk kids, teaching them how to read, understand their emotions, and value imagination and play. Can you even imagine that happening now with our political landscape? We're barely feeding them right now. In a way, Sesame Street is a documentary about poverty in America. Not that it's a fatal life sentence. Reading was the key to improving a life and a lifestyle in the same way currently many at-risk urban children primarily view their poverty escape pods as either rap music or sports of some kind, typically basketball or football. Sesame Street is a joyful hope that is not influenced by circumstances. The setting never matched Big Bird's mood. And sure, there was always Oscar the Grouch, who remained faithfully chained to the neighborhood. Really among the trash ideas he collected was that this was always going to be his life and his lifestyle. Still, dude had his moments. And his presence ensured the street wouldn't be all Pollyanna. Not everyone in the neighborhood is going to be cool, right? Big Bird represents freedom. A childlike joy that it was possible to find play and hope even when current circumstances did not dictate obvious silver linings. The ability to effectively reframe negative circumstances is a powerful trait seen among Silicon Valley founders and many NBA players like Michael Jordan. You know how hard it is to be in a playoff series down one, maybe two games, and still believe you can still win it all? All the media, all the box scores, all the fans do not believe in you, and they're clearly communicating that lack of belief. And you, with your skills and your team, you do not agree. That undeniable dream, that passion to reframe negativity and overcome the odds is powerful. It's why we make uplifting sports movies. Or her movies with electric company actor Morgan Freeman, who learned a powerful lesson in the value of reframing negative circumstances when he was jailed at Shawshank Penitentiary. Sesame Street, along with the bulk of those fresh-tastic shows, is a recognition that we were closer in the 70s and to the 80s in terms of equality, or even better, in equity, which is fairness or justice in the way people are treated. America wasn't always this harsh Mad Max type country where we're forced to fend for ourselves. Slow, progressive upward mobility was entirely possible. And necessary, if not outright beneficial, because we believed in the common good. And now, we make memes about how common sense isn't common and the phones are smart, not the users. That's why the title is Sunny Days is so potent. It, it doesn't matter how cold the winter is or how fierce the thunderstorm is. Sunny days are expected. Sunny days will return. It may be difficult to see how we get out of this political hot mess. In many ways, it's like quicksand. The, the more you struggle, the faster you'll sink. It took a television revolution, and surprise, surprise, the revolution was televised, to make magic happen and to firmly establish hope. I don't know how we spark a new era of enlightenment or water hope so that it may flourish culturally. Maybe it's glib to believe this too shall pass. Yet Camp's well-written book confirms we were good ones. We were passionate and helped those who couldn't always help themselves. So if we were good ones, it's entirely possible for us to be good again. Sunny days are here if you want them.
John Lennon is right. War is over if you want it. When I'm not reading, I'm writing a Substack newsletter. Head on over to Substack.com and search My Pal Sammy. My Pal Sammy on Substack. I share our current sunny days with all kinds of cool pop culture, books and TV shows, music, and so much more with the joy you hear in three is the magic number. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Sunny days, yo.